Welcome to Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast, hosted by Andy Baldacci. Each week, Andy interviews a successful agency owner who shares their proven strategies to help you build and grow your agency. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to episode number 47 of Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Baldacci, and today I'm talking with Casey Cobb. Casey is the founder of the 25-person design and development shop, Project Ricochet. But he's also an inventor, angel investor, writer, speaker, and has co-founded two other companies. He's a busy guy. Today, Casey shares with us a concept that describes why working with a team can be so miserable sometimes. That concept is called accidental evil, and if you've spent any time working in a group, you've definitely been a victim of it. I'll be honest, the deck is stacked against you a bit, but luckily there's a way to avoid all this. And Casey is here to explain what you need to do to avoid accidental evil and make work fun, profitable, and more impactful. This isn't some pie-in-the-sky motivational talk built on cliches that you can't act on. No, this is an actionable lesson to increase your productivity, decrease your stress, and build a better agency, and a better life for that matter. So without further ado, here's Casey. Casey, I want to get right into it today. One of the things I first heard about you is that you're very deliberate about all of your actions. So we're going to talk more about how that manifests in other ways. But what I want to do is I want to get started and ask you how that shaped, how that deliberateness shaped the way you built your agency. So we set out very specifically at the very beginning to not grow accidentally. And I think a lot of agencies, the the thing that we struggle with is that, especially when you're really small, is you get a big project and you hire to satisfy that. And then you get another big project and you hire to satisfy that. And by the time you're comfortable with the size you're at, you are bigger. And then the things you learned are no longer appropriate and you've got to learn the next thing. And you're just, you're always putting out fire. So our goal was to get it to the size that we're actually at now. We're at about 25 people. Not all of those are um, full-time, but I I think this is about the size where it's, it's a very specific and explicit size for us because it means that my partner and I can manage and meet with everybody on a weekly basis. So we can actually have a one-on-one with every single uh, team member. And w- once you start getting a, any bigger than this, you get, uh, it starts, you start having to have, I think, a, a middle management or, or not. And then you have pain points that come with each of those. But along with Ricochet, um, you know, we, as a part of Ricochet, we've taken an equity investment in several startups and we're actively involved in advising and guiding those. And then you know, uh, independently, I've, I'm a, a partner of a of a brewery here in the Bay Area, Ale Industries. Um, push that along, and uh, you know, my uh, I'm, I've just got my hands in a lot of things. And plus, you know, I kind of have, yeah, evangelize all the topics that I'm really passionate about, and I try to, in between all that, fit fit being a dad for a a, a three year old, soon to be four four year old, in a couple months here. Um, it just kind of, so it seems like you have a ton of free time then. Oh yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, that's, that's my backstory. I loved when you said that so many agencies grow accidentally because one of the things I've seen so much just time and time again, when talking to all these agency owners is that so many of them almost are accidental agency owners. They, they were a freelancer themselves they did great work. They had some referrals and they said, Hey, I can't handle this, but my buddy or, or whoever, I know this other person you can help out and we can do this together and then we can take on more work. And then 
two or three years down the road, they have a team of five to ten, and they have no idea how they got there or what they're even doing because it wasn't deliberate. They just sort of grew. So hearing about that deliberate plan is something that I think is so important. And honestly, that could be a topic in and of itself. But there's one thing that you've, you've written a lot about, you've spoken a lot about, and that I really think is very important, but not many other agency owners think about this. And that's accidental evil. Can you tell us a little bit what that concept is? Yeah, um, this is something that I've kind of honed in on over the years when I've just, I've, I've seen this through my own businesses, through uh, client uh, organizations, through um, even just my personal life is this concept of, um, I guess the best description is, imagine you're at the precipice of a decision and there's two alternate paths that could go depending on what you decide to do. So um, insert whatever, you're going to hire somebody or you know, you're going to take on this new client or whatever. And if you behave one way or you make one decision, this certain set of things is going to happen. And if you behave the other way uh, or you make the other decision, then these other things are going to happen. And I guess the thing that highlights accidental evil is that if you made one choice, you would have really great results. And if you made the other choice, you could have really horrible results. And the, the distinguishing feature of accidental evil is that the difference between the effort between those two choices was marginal. You know, there was almost no additional expulsion of energy for the great outcome over the bad outcome. Or maybe there was, but it was just barely any more. And it was certainly disproportionate to the amount of hell you had to go through for making the wrong decision. And this, this kind of uh, hits every aspect of whenever you have more than one person in a room, you have accidental evil potentially happening. And you know, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples, but just on that point you were just making about seeing agency owners grow um, accidentally. That, that's one of the situations, that's one of the environments in which accidental evil thrives. And I think the book, a book that really highlights this and makes it explicit. I don't know if you've ever read E-Myth by Michael yep. Gerber. Yeah. I've actually gifted that book a lot to people. Yeah. yeah and it, it's kind of interesting because he talks about not, not really agency work, right? He's talking about you open up a a dry cleaner or you know, something where you just want to do that. Maybe dry cleaner is not a good example, but he talks about the, the engineer who wants to do, maybe like or a the chef a, who wants to, yeah, to per, open a restaurant. Perfect right. example, right? Chef wants to open a restaurant. He finds very quickly that he doesn't get to cook when you open a restaurant. If you want to cook, you have two choices, either go work for somebody who will let you cook or build your business to a certain size to where it can allow you to cook and, it can be self-sustaining. And those two options, the, the, the option where you build the business, I mean, that could be years and years before you get to cook, really. And a lot of people don't realize that. And when they do try to do both, they end up neglecting some very key responsibilities that make their lives and their employees' lives and even their, their customers' or their, and their vendors' lives um, a lot worse when they don't when they decide not to engage in the business aspects that they do, they need to when they are a business person, right? So I guess the, I'll give you two examples. One I've used before in a, um, another podcast interview, but I think it kind of highlights the point in kind of a dramatic way. And then one is very specific to agency experience and a solution that we kind of put in place to overcome that. So the first one, the really dramatic, easy example is every time I get in my, Volkswagen Touareg. Um, this is a it's a 2012, so it's 
maybe a little bit dated now. Maybe they fixed it since. But it it and I I do the voice navigation to uh, to get to a meeting. It says, okay, where do you want to go? And I say, um, I want to go to Oakland. And it it pops up and says, okay, which which Oakland do you mean? Do you mean Oakland, New York? Oakland, Florida? Oakland, Montana? And I have to page like three times to get to Oakland, California. I'm literally 10 miles away from Oakland, right? I'm probably not going to be going to Oakland, New York. And what's even worse is that the reason you're using voice navigation is because you don't want to be typing because you, you want to be safe. When you start paginating, it says it pops up with a screen that says, hey, don't type while you're driving <laughs> <laughs> and click here to confirm that you're not doing that, what you're doing right now, what I'm forcing you to do for no reason. And so you click that, you finally find Oakland, California, and then it starts guiding you. And, you know, I wonder how many people have been run over because of this feature that or this lack of a feature which is sorting by distance rather than by alpha. And when you think back to the programmer who was originally making this, it was a probably some sort of a SQL query where he just, at the end, sort by you know state or sort by distance, because you know they have the distance information. Right. It's I a mean, GPS it's a GPS, thing. Yeah. like it has to, right. So, so he just chose one, or he or she just chose one over the other. And that was it. He probably doesn't drive a Touareg. And he doesn't know that this is impacting hundreds of thousands or millions of vehicles and uh, millions of driving hours across the country. And I'll bet you people have died as a result of this. But just nobody's thinking about that because they just didn't, there's not that communication back up. Or because Volkswagen doesn't have, you know, some key thing in there where you've actually got to use the system that you're programming. I don't know what that is, but... You know, the, the, there was probably a marginal additional energy to sort by distance, and they just didn't do that. So, so n- let me bring it into practical for your audience. Uh, one of the things that we do every single week, my partner and I meet with every single person on our team for 30 minutes, 10 minutes for them to talk about whatever they want, 10 minutes for uh, me or my partner to talk about what's important to us with relation to them or the company, and then 10 minutes dedicated to their growth and coaching and, and, and the like. And one of uh, my team said, hey, um, I really don't like the fact that on the day before a demo for a client, uh, QA finally gets around to looking at tickets, and then they reopen a bunch, and then I've got to work late that night to fix that stuff, fix those bugs that there's no reason why QA couldn't. I've had the ready for, for a week. Why couldn't QA have done this a week ago? And I would have been able to have a normal work week uh, and, and fix these things in a timely manner rather than last minute. And you think about organizationally, especially when you're growing, you're always trying to keep up. QA's got more than they can they can do. If you don't have a dedicated QA person, it's just developers, and it's always kind of the second second priority. So it ends up happening last minute, and then that ends up playing out. And so, you know, at first, really awesome that he felt comfortable to bring that up. Because a lot of people just think that that's just the way it's got to be. And my, you know, my guiding light to my team is if there's ever something that you feel is unfair or just really sucks, bring that up. There's no reason why you should have a job that has something where you feel that it's unfair, that we're doing something, and there's no way out. Because that's how people get burned out. At least bring it up and let's make a plan. Or let's say, yeah, we just can't deal with that right now, but we're going to keep looking at it every month or every week or every quarter to try to come to a solution, 
maybe we need to grow to a certain size to be able to afford somebody to, to address that or who, who knows. But um, what we did basically was we made a, uh, well, well, this was actually at the end of last year, we decided that we needed more QA help. So we hired uh, more QA help. And then we also made a series of metrics that measured, we, we actually came together as a team. We created three, three metrics that measured the health of a sprint. And it, it kind of spanned tickets stagnating in a, in a single status throughout the sprint. It spanned things getting, staying in sprint after sprint, never getting closed out. And then also things getting reopened repeatedly. So all three of those are three different health metrics that we decided to start measuring. And now every single week on our management meeting, we look at all the projects as a team that score below a certain threshold. And it's not so important that, you know, all these be at a certain threshold or at a certain score because there's always mitigating reasons. Some, some clients are just really picky. You can't get them to not close a ticket. They just want to keep tacking stuff on. Um, but, I mean, there's a bunch of different reasons why those scores might be low, but at least we have the discussion and we say, is there something that we could be doing better as a result of this, these learnings? And things did get better. You know, the sprints started getting closed out. Uh, they started becoming more tidy. You know, that, that actually played into a bunch of things, which is that when sprints don't get closed out and they go week to week, people start getting demoralized because they never rally to finish out the sprint. They just know that there's always a ton of stuff on there. So just do what you just do what you can do as best you can, and then you know the the, the it, it's it's never something that you can actually achieve, right? And you start checking out to a certain extent, right? Yeah, for sure, exactly. When the goal is so high, when the goal you just know and you're almost ingrained in just your work habits, you're like, all right, we can't get that anyway. So just do your best. What actually comes out is not your best. It's just it's just what it is at that point, sort of. I'm curious so to dig into this. A little bit more because I know it's more than this. I, I know it's not just accidental evils more than just all the kind of annoyances in everyday office life. But is that the goal to just not have any sort of friction? Or because I think a lot of people who, especially those who have worked in larger corporations, would just assume that in every job there's going to be some sort of friction, there's going to be some things that just really don't work the way they're intended to. So is the goal to just eliminate all of these things or what is it? That's a really good point. A really good question. The first thing on the thing about the sprint stuff is, okay, somebody could say, who cares, right? If they're working as hard as they can, they either finish the tickets or they don't, they do the same amount of hours every week. What does it matter? But there's a, there's a reality, which is that when people know that they can that, that they can and should get the sprint completed, when they see that there's an extra ticket there, they might go to somebody and say, hey, you know, to the client, like, hey, you know, we can't get this done the way that the acceptance criteria are specifying right now. But if you could accept this kind of alternative solution, we could get it done right now on maybe two hours of work instead of 10. Is that okay for you? And they might say, yeah, totally. And then you can ship the product and and get get have a success rather than having a delay and having a bad mark on your company because you guys can just never get stuff done. When things are really ambiguous, people don't find those opportunities. So so that's you know that has really larger implications for your team morale, your team burnout, your customer satisfaction, your 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 customer retention, all these these bigger points. L- let me give you where I kind of discovered accidental evil, where it really crystallized in my head was um 
and I've used this example before, but I just, I think it's, or not even example, this kind of realization before, but I, I, I have a condo in, um, in a, in a city nearby here. And my, my tenant called me and said, Hey, you need to fix the garbage disposal. It's when I flip on the garbage disposal, all the stuff on the countertop vibrates so violently that it all falls on the ground. I was like, wow, <laughs> that sounds really dramatic. And <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, well, before I call somebody to fix it, let me just come down and take a look. And so I went down, sure enough, flipped it on, stuff was vibrating like crazy. And I looked underneath the sink. Now, I don't know anything about garbage disposals, but just trying to understand the mechanics of it. Underneath the sink for the drain, there's the, the disposal. And then there's a little ring that kind of connects that to the bottom of the sink. And all that I did was tighten that, that ring ever so slightly, maybe a quarter of an inch, and then flipped on the garbage disposal, perfectly smooth. And, and all of a sudden I had this big realization where like my life, my business life and all the things that I'm involved in flashed before my eyes. And I realized that what most people do, this is kind of maybe hyperbole or, or anecdotal, but what a lot of people do is they say, we need a new garbage disposal. And they might get somebody out there and $500 later, you've got maybe even $1,000, you've got a new one and it's repaired and the, the, the tenant is happy. Whereas the alternative is, is expending less than a calorie of energy to solve the same problem. Now I can take that $1,000 that I would have spent and I can invest that in my life to get returns elsewhere. And 50 years down the road, that $1,000 might turn into a million dollars or more. And the alternative is that I wouldn't have had that. So how that applies to business is that I would venture to say that most crazy organizations come back to a few root causes, just maybe even a couple. And instead of expending the calorie of energy to solve those problems, we try to do these really dramatic changes and uh, try to solve the problem through firing everybody and rehiring or, you know, bringing in a consultant to change the culture or whatever. And, and the reality is like, for example, I mean, this has been well documented. Organizations are oftentimes a reflection of the owner. And if the owner is kind of a crazy disorganized dude, the organization ends up being that. And if the, if, if the owner is a really meticulous engineering style dude, the organization has problems with marketing because, you know, that's not what they're all about. And the solutions to those are really just figuring out how to inject the opposite of those qualities into your organization. It's not some big dramatic thing. Um, it can be really small. And I think that's the point. Uh, when, when it seems like a big thing, you never have time to do it. And so you never do. And when it's actually several small things, they're very painless things that you can, that anybody can implement. And you can have, you can affect dramatic change in your organization in your client work, your quality of work. Um, I'll, I'll give you another example where accidental evil was pretty, uh, was pretty prevalent at Ricochet and how we resolved it. So, so I had a, um, a PM come to me uh, totally overwhelmed. And the feedback to me was that this project was just a, it was a hellacious project. Nothing was getting done. Things were getting stacked up. The client was frustrated. Um, they just would never accept what we actually did even though we thought we were doing exactly what they asked for. And I was like, man, this, this is, we're an agile shop, but a lot of people say they're agile shops. I've read about agile. I've, I've studied it. You know, I had studied it loosely and I was like, you know what I need to do? I need to read agile. I need to go back and just really study it. 
And I did. I got a couple books and I spent the weekend reading them. And I had this epiphany that one thing that we are not doing so well is getting very concrete acceptance criteria from the client to the point where it's like, okay, I need to, the user story is, you know, as a user of the application or a logged in user of the application, I need to be able to log out. Um, we were not doing the so that, you know, like so that I don't leave my browser uh, exposed to other people coming by and messing with my stuff, right? You may maybe don't need a logout link for that. Maybe you just need a timeout. Or, I mean, who knows any way? But if you don't know what the what the reason the person's asking for, the so that, how can you really devise a solution that actually satisfies the need other than an engineer just building a log logout link? And then the other thing is um, the acceptance criteria. So what exactly do they mean by that? Do they want a link up in the upper right hand corner, or do they should it time out after an hour? Should it, you know, what, what are the details here? so that we can make sure that our estimates are accurate. And that really, in all honesty, that we can guarantee that we're going to finish it. And so we, we actually, uh, we said, I said basically no tickets get started until they have acceptance criteria. If there's no acceptance criteria, we don't do any work on that project that week. And so all of our efforts should go toward discussion with the client to build out that very specific acceptance criteria. And as we do them, if the client wants to tack stuff on, we say, hey, no problem. We can do that stuff, but it's got to be a new ticket because it doesn't match the acceptance criteria, right? There's no, no issue with this. Let's just close this out, accept it. We'll make a new one right now with new acceptance criteria because we hold our developers accountable for their estimates too. We want to know that they're accurate. And that's a metric that we actually measure every single week. Suddenly, the project became a dream project. I mean, night and day. And all it took was for me as a leader to really understand what was missing here, the, the acceptance criteria, make sure that our organization was demanding from the client what we really needed to be successful, and then implement that. And it was really a, quite a simple solution. And the project um, you know, kind of swam right along at that point. And as opposed to you know, literally ending in tears, you know, like uh, on both sides. Uh, and, and from me too, when the client was pissed off that we weren't getting their stuff done. So let's let's back up as to why this is happening because I think that's I, th I think that's instrumental in in uh, explaining you know how 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 we can address this and and you know what the bigger picture is and it's basically that I don't know if you you must have read uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly yep. Effective People right so he talks about this urgency importance matrix and he says you, you obviously have things that are urgent important, urgent not important, not urgent important, you know, like the, 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 four, the two by two matrix basically. And what we as human beings are really good at is dealing with urgence, urgency. We love it. We get a dopamine fix every time we deal with a fire or a crisis. And um, what ends up happening is for the most part, when you're first starting your business, when it's just you, everything is urgent and important. And you're just, you're just knocking stuff down and fixing things, you're stressed, but you're, you, you get this dopamine fix that kind of equals that and usually keeps you pushing. When you start hiring people, um, you, stop, you stop becoming the firefighter and you start becoming the person that should be dealing with stuff that's not urgent but is important. But because we're addicted to urgency at that point, we start pulling things in that are not urgent and not important. And we start, like for instance, the phone rings. Do you really have to answer that phone right now? Probably not. It's probably a salesperson, right? That's not urgent and not important, most likely. And if it's important, listen to the voicemail right after and call them back, right? Um, at that point, it becomes maybe urgent, important, maybe 
important, uh, but not urgent, right? And you can get back to it in a couple of days. So um, it's interesting to me when I went, when we got to a certain size where I was no longer billing time, I actually went through this kind of crisis of conscience where I was like, man, what do I do? <laughs> I was like a, sitting in my chair, like I don't have to do anything right now. And, you know, depression is probably an extreme word, but it was like kind of lost. I was lost at that point. And I had to, I had to basically give, I was going through withdrawal of urgency. And I had to come to the conclusion that my role should be dealing with things that are the coming problems in the organization. So for instance, a lot of agencies just deal with, uh, they, they get work just coming in. And then when it doesn't come in, they have crises. And I, I wanted to be solving that problem for business development, right? So put my effort to that. When we, you know, when we really needed to start learning about search engine optimization for our own efforts, I started learning that. Like all these things that I didn't have to do, but I should be doing because those are the problems for the coming, in the coming year, really, that I should be getting ahead of or hiring or managing or whatever. Um, but a lot of people don't get over that addiction. They keep dealing with the urgency. And what ends up happening is because you're spending so much time on that, you're not doing these other things that are actually really, really important. And then it ends up affecting your organization in these really negative ways. So really, I think it comes down to a leadership, but there are a couple things depending on your temperament. So I'm a big proponent of the DISC personality assessment. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. No, what, what is it? Is yeah, it, it D-I-S-K or C? D-I-S-C, okay. yep. Um, it's just a, a way of kind of understanding personalities and temperaments. I, 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 I like it infinitely more than Myers-Briggs because Myers-Briggs is more about what's going on in your brain rather than how you behave. And most people that read a Myers-Briggs assessment, it, it kind of fits them, but not entirely. Um, they're, they're always a little skeptical about it with good reason. Um, but DISC, I found, I've administered this probably over a thousand times now. And without exception... It, it's it, well, sometimes there are ex exceptions with some kind of unique personalities, but for the most part, it's so remarkably spot on and it gives you and that person a common language to communicate about your organization, about uh, effectiveness, about what they're getting done, about some of their weaknesses, about some of their strengths. And uh, it's, it's, it's just a really valuable tool. Um, so uh, when you have these kinds of things, you can start communicating way more effectively in reducing accidental evil. The other way that you might find that I found is like, if we have a really big problem, I just read a scrum. So there's that, there, there's a book by Jeff Sutherland, scrum getting twice done in half the time. Okay. Have you read that one? No. It's a really amazing book. It's like, it's the guy who, who kind of established scrum and, and put it out in the world. And he talks about how he applies scrum to, I mean, everything in his life from mm. doing a whole, oh, okay, that's really cool. Yeah. Home remodeling to, you know, family time, uh, you know, what, what is the family going to do on, on the, the schedule to work problems, to giant government contracts, to, you know, anything. And basically you just come together and uh, just try to solve a problem. And, you know, I, the one scrum that I'm doing right now is, you know, we at that brewery I mentioned, Ale Industries, we've just uh, invested in an expansion and we've got to sell a lot of beer. And so we're coming together every day to talk about, actually, I only come in once a week, but the whole team is getting together once a day to talk about, are we at 100%, right? And if we aren't, what are the problems that we can address as a team and, and to push beyond that? You know, at Ricochet, our product development, same thing. 
um, we have a scrum around what are we doing to push our product out and, and get, get it, uh, you know, some traction out in the world. These things were, you know, you, you get, you start showing results every single day rather than procrastinating. I mean, everybody's been involved in a sprint that nobody starts working on the sprint until the day before the demo. And then only, you know, a 10th of the stuff is due everything rolls over to the next sprint. And you just, you know, after 10 weeks, you get all the original things done because you get a 10th done every week. But um, it's just demoralizing, right? It's like you could have got, you could have done all that in a week if you just talked about it every single, every single day. And if you couldn't get to it, you had a discussion about that, and then you made a plan around, excuse me, solving that problem. You know. So one thing I'm thinking right now is that you can tell me if this is off base, but like I, I see a big similarity between accidental evil and, and technical debt. But obviously it applies to more than just code, but it seems like a lot of it arises for the same reasons, whether it's your rush, whether for whatever reasons you're not going to invest the time, even if it is marginal up front. And then you're kind of stuck with those decisions for a while down the road because it's so much harder to change them when they've already been in place. Is that a reasonable approximation or something? Almost. I I would say there's two types of technical debt. There's accidental technical debt and then there's conscious technical debt. So in product development, you might say, you know, this is always happens. The engineer comes and says, Hey, to solve this, to really solve this problem, we've got to do it this way. And you say, well, yeah, but you know, <laughs> don't have the budget or the time to do that. What's the 80% solution, right? Using the 80, 20 rule, you can get 80% of the way there on 20% of the time. And they might say, well, we're, we're going to do it this way, but it's going to result in this. The danger where you can create accidental evil is if you say, okay, we'll just do that. And then you have this technical debt that's living, that's lurking in your, your, your code that's going to bite you at some point and you don't know about it. So a good way to turn it from accidental evil to just, you know, kind of explicit evil, which is if you know that it's explicitly there, you can, what I was going to follow up with that. So I'm curious to hear what you're saying. Yeah. Well, you can put some, some bomb on that burn, right? It's like, yeah, this is going to suck guys, but we're going to address it. We've got a plan for it. It's going to live in the tech debt epic and we're going to get to it. Right. So just make a ticket to fix that tech debt. And when we have downtime or when we get to a certain milestone of achievement or we have some level of profit, we're going to reinvest into reducing that tech debt. And, and a lot of organizations, you know, the, the, when the marketing folks are driving that, because they don't ever pay for the cost of like the pain, they don't feel the pain of the tech debt, they don't really, they never prioritize it. But if the engineering team says, hey, we're, we're just not going to do this until we pay down some of this tech debt, let's negotiate, Right. And, and you start having a dialogue about how painful it is because you're going to start burning out your engineers. You, you got to go to the leadership to explain the true costs of all this stuff. And I would much rather an organization that does crappy stuff, but explicitly does it for, for a choice and then has a plan to deal with it after the fact, rather than an organization that ignores all this nasty stuff that they're doing and then just kind of deals with the fallout as it comes because I think that that makes the world a, a less better place. So what it seems like you're saying is that, especially in small growing agencies, at least from my perspective, there's going to be times where you're going to make less than ideal decisions. And that that's not bad in and of itself. But what can lead to the accidental evil is when you're not clear on what those outcomes are and don't create a plan to remedy them down the road. Yeah, like if you're if you're always bur- running your people at 130% or 200%, uh, eventually you're going to burn them out. And if you just ignore that, you're going to have a high turnover cost. Like this is not some humanitarian idea. 
this is just good business. It's it's good business to not burn your people out because there are statistics about how uh, replacing somebody costs costs a lot as as a proportion of their salary. Like it's actually an expensive endeavor. And when you ignore that, you are incurring costs that you don't actually know about. So it would be much better to put, in my opinion, to put the costs out there and just put them on the table. And if you if your strategy, like you know, I mean, say what you will about McDonald's, but they maybe have high turnover, but the 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 jobs are simple enough to where they can train people fast enough to where they've made that decision. They've just said, you know, to return, uh, get a good return on our, our shareholders' investments. We are going to, you know, have people, they're going to leave anyway because they're younger. We're not paying that much. This is an explicit business decision. And then you have another business, In-N-Out Burger, which uh, is kind of specific to California and Nevada, where they pay their people um, a much higher wage. And they don't burn them out. And, you know, they're more engaged and, and they're kind of like a cult classic for people who like hamburgers. And those are two different strategies that the organizations have chosen. And I'm, I mean, this is not, a, like I said, this is not a humanitarian thing. Whatever you choose, stand by it and move forward. But just don't, don't incur costs that other people have to pay, um, including maybe investors or shareholders or yourself, right? Because you're working uh, 60, 70 hours a week when you could be getting a lot more done on 30 hours a week and spending that extra time with your family, for instance, or in other ventures. Um, there's just, there's, there's lost value there. And that's ultimately what I'm driving at. Obviously with like the, the VW example, like with a lot of the examples, especially on the extremes, the accidental evil, though, those lazy decisions can lead to death. They can lead to significant harms in the more everyday sense, uh, in, in like an agency or just any business in general, is the primary driver of avoiding accidental evil, is it minimizing burnout and increasing efficiency? Or what, what, how would you pin it down, I guess? Let me, by example, so I'm, I'm pushing forward six different companies. I mean, I, I work about 40 hours a week. I spend uh, time with my family every single day. I bike 10 miles a day. I read 50 books a year um, and I still have extra time. I actually do have time for activities. I go camping on the weekend, do astrophotography. I, I'm not that busy. I, I figured out that if you get ahead of all this stuff, it expands your time exponentially and everybody around you is happier and you have more profit. <laughs> like it's just good business sense. And um, I guess that's what I'm getting at is when I look at, I said I don't like Myers-Briggs, but if you actually look at my Myers-Briggs type, I, I, there are some extreme cases where it's like them to a, a, like spot on. I'm in ENTJ and Myers-Briggs. The, the driving force for ENTJs, according to Myers-Briggs, is efficiency. And I strive to get efficiency in every single thing that I do. Um, that's my driving force is just trying to get things to take as much time as they need to take so that that time can be reinvested into society and then we can put that energy into pushing ourselves forward and innovating and solving big problems rather than just on keeping our head above water and because it goes back to a lot of what you're saying with the 80 20 principle and that most of what and tell me if i'm putting words in your mouth it seems like what you're saying is that a lot of businesses, uh, agencies, not even just in particular, but just in businesses in general, a lot of the time is spent on things that, frankly, don't matter that much. They're not the 20% that are getting the disproportionate returns. It's the 80% that gets to the 20 Is that reasonable? Yeah, totally. 
I mean, think think about in, in investment. I mean, in uh, in products, even client work, we spend so much time like dealing ab- about you know color choices and design subtleties when really it could be that your whole business is lame and it's not going to work at all, <laughs> right? Like I I like the four hour work week. Not that Tim Ferriss's book is anything about working four hours because it, it's t- I mean that's why a lot of engineers say it's a stupid book. And in fact, you don't the premise it's just a it's a clickbait title. But the the gem in there is that. Man, before you invest a hundred grand in your idea and mortgage your house for it, just do some really quick tests to see if it's a dumb idea or not, because you can't trust yourself. And and you might find that you shouldn't be putting your time into that. Put it into something else that's going to yield better results. And I think that this idea applies across every aspect of our lives, really. Right? I mean, to your point. Mm. And it's something where I love that you brought up the four hour work week because you're right. That's like the perfect example of a clickbait title, but if you listen to Tim Ferriss's podcast and I'll just read anything he's written, like he's clearly not saying work only four hours and that's it. It's about efficiency. It's about working on the things that matter so that you can figure out for yourself what does matter. Exactly. I'm going to stop Casey right there for a quick word for our sponsor, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The Agency Advantage podcast is brought to you by Hubstaff. Hubstaff makes time tracking software for remote teams so that you can stop tracking time with spreadsheets or whatever else your team decided to use that week and start getting the insights you need that can only come from having accurate data all in one place. Our best clients are agency owners, and while they love the accountability that comes with it, it's sort of like Upwork but without the crazy fees, where they really find the value is by being able to connect Hubstaff with their project management tool to see how much time it really takes to deliver each part of a project. Think of it as Google Analytics for your team. I've been absolutely blown away by how many times an agency owner has come up to me and said, Andy, we started using Hubstaff a month ago, and after looking over the data, we realized we've actually been losing money on one of our most popular services. If you don't know what your real profit was in your last project, then you'd need to try Hubstaff out. To say thanks for tuning into the show, Hubstaff is offering all of our listeners a 30% discount on all of our plans. All you need to do is head over to try.hubstaff.com forward slash podcast and use the coupon code advantage that's try.hubstaff.com forward slash podcast and coupon code advantage all right let's get back to casey what in your opinion does a high performing agency that actively works to minimize accidental what does that look like so so this is very particular to what my vision is for my organization but i want my engineers and creative people to come in every morning and in a Zen-like kind of way, see exactly what they have to do that day, have the, the mental space to be able to work on those things without interruption and execute those as the 80% solution and give the client the ability to you know, say, is this good enough or do you want me to keep going to the 100% solution? I want them to hit their estimates. I want the clients to be happy I want us to come under our estimates on every single project. And then, you know, th- then that feeds back into client happiness. They end up, they still spend that money with us, but they just spend it on things that they want to spend it on. And then we retain them for, for longer periods. I don't want anybody to ever quit. I want, um, until we're all wildly successful because we actually have a whole product venture arm that everybody has an equity stake in, um, to w- successes from those products end up flowing through to the team. I want a, an entirely, uh, kind of virtuous ecosystem for everybody that's involved in Ricochet, from clients to my partner and I to employees to even contractors. I, I just I want it all to work 
really, really smoothly without the craziness that I've never seen not at an agency outside of ours, really. Because that's the thing is that so many of the examples you gave, are, that's just par for the course in a lot of agencies. And, and that's the thing is I, I, don't, I don't want listeners to think that, that it has to be that way. And because that's the dangerous part is there's so much of this. It's just because when you look around, you, you don't find many better alternatives. You don't see many examples of, of businesses working in any other way. So you just assume like, all right, I need to put in my 80 hours and just suck it up. Yeah. Let me let me let me say, that, you know, where where I had a big realization with Ricochet was aside from the whole point about me not knowing where to put my time. I kind of there were some things that I was having to engage in that I just really hated and um, and I basically said, okay, how much money do I want to make? How, how, what do I not want to do? Or what do I want to do? What are, what are my strengths? And how do I do that? And then how do I make it looking bigger picture at all the things that people have to do that they don't like doing? And because they don't like doing, they don't do it. How can we have things for that? So that's why we hired an admin team who handle a lot of these things that either I had to do or just didn't get done. I have um, I have our admin team actually goes through all my email and prioritizes it according to the urgency importance matrix. I only look at the, the, the urgent important stuff on a day to day. And then I only look at the, you know, not urgent important stuff week to week. And I only look at the not urgent, not important stuff. Um, like maybe once a month, right? That gave me two hours back a day that I could focus on my life rather than not knowing. I mean, you know this feeling, right? It's like you've got 500 emails in your inbox. You just did a scan of it. You know the three that are important and then 50 more come in. And so now you've got to do, it's like the worst sorting O of N algorithm ever. You got to go through <laughs> everything again to find the three that were important and the two more that might be important in that 50. And it's, you never have the time to actually clear everything out. So you're just always stressed. And then that affects your, your productivity. And then you get in an argument with your wife because you're irritable. And then that plays out because you don't get any sleep. And it's like all these things snowball and they don't have to be that way. So what I would say is, you know, start with the constants that you need in your life. And then, you know, it turned out that in order for us to make an ecosystem that worked to afford an admin team and also, you know, business development, I was spending a lot of time. I was basically doing all of our business development to hire somebody to be able to do that. We had to be a certain size. And what size is that? Oh, well, it's, you know, this many hours. And okay, well, how many developers do we, can we, do we have? And how many do we need to be able to achieve that? And, you know, like backing into the plan from there actually allowed us to achieve that. But until we had the plan, we didn't, we, we were just rudderless, you know? That's what a lot of it comes down to is having that plan and being truly deliberate and thoughtful about what you're trying to achieve. Because when you just go with it when when you just have that accidental growth where you just take on as many clients as come to you you're not thinking about the services you're not thinking about who you're going after you're not doing any of that you're just doing things as almost momentum carries you through you're going to whether you want to call it accidental evil or, or an externality or anything like that you're going to have a lot of bad outcomes that could have been avoided yeah and and, and the, to the point that we were making earlier if you just apply the scrum model to reducing accidental evil and having a plan, you know, the way to know if you're doing accidental evil or not is you map out the the ideal outcome, and then you measure the delta between what you're, where you're at, and where you want to be, and then you just make a plan to address each of those things in an incremental, smaller level fashion, trying to find the 80% solution for each of those issues. You're going to reduce accidental evil 
everybody's going to be happier. Your organization's going to be more profitable. Um, and you're going to enjoy what you do. Like there's, it's just, it, it all fits together and it doesn't seem like it, it doesn't seem like you can just map out what you want and then make it happen. But I mean, it, it worked for me. No. <laughs> <laughs> what would you recommend to an agency owner? Because I, I think a lot of what you've talked about, it obviously makes sense, but some of it's so fundamental that when you're so far along, it might be hard to get there. So if someone's already has their agency, they're already doing all right, but but they have realized that they're working too many hours, that maybe their their team has high turnover, things like that. Is that what you'd recommend? Would you say start by looking at the accidental evil you already have and then go from there? If I were to break it down into some actionable steps, the first thing that I would say is to actually make a budget where everything that you want to have happen is happening in that budget. You know, make a monster spreadsheet in, in, in Excel and you know, figure out how many billable hours you need to have everybody in the organization make a market rate and also have the room, you know, if there's any, any responsibilities that nobody wants to do or nobody is doing, you know, map that out. How much do you have to pay for that? Just get it all out on the table and then figure out how far away you are from that. And then come together with your team. I mean, I, I've never done this. I, I built my organization from scratch in this way. So I don't know how I would do it if not through this, through, you know, how I did it. But this is just probably what I would do if I were consulting for an agency. And then I would say, okay, guys, let's do a scrum every day. We're going to talk about, you know, for 15 minutes, if we're getting, it, we'd have a weekly kind of sprint planning. And then we'd have a daily scrum about how close we are to getting to this thing. And I guess in a way, like with the, with the brewery I'm involved with, I wasn't, I didn't found it. Um, I actually founded my winery at the same time that I founded the brewery or that they founded the brewery. And, and I've kind of, a friend of mine, I've been involved, you know, as, as a friend, but now I'm coming in and applying all these principles and I'm watching them happen, right? Like I'm, I'm watching applying scrum and a Kanban board uh, to the process and I'm watching feedback um, according to, I don't know if you've ever seen managertools.com, but a great model for feedback and one-on-ones, you know, applying one-on-ones, applying you know, the team, breweries are not like uh, service organizations where uh, it's a different crowd. It's a different group of folks. They're not as tech savvy, right? But all these things still apply. Like I, they're not all electronic, but just the basic principles. And I, I actually, I guess I am applying this to an organization that didn't have this stuff from the start. And I'm watching it every single day pay dividends. So you just, and it started with a budget. And then it started with how do we get there? And then it started with you know, like uh, in explaining why Scrum is important and why feedback is important and getting people to do it and then seeing that they see that there's results. And then, you know, just incrementally applying these things over and over and over again. And I, I don't see any reason why that wouldn't work in a, in a technical thing. But if the, if the owner, the owner really, I think, has to drive that. And if he or she is always stuck dealing with the, you know, billable time, it'll never happen. That's probably the, the first and foremost is, you can't be you can't be billing time if you really want to lead your organization um, forward. And you can't you know there's that that dangerous thing where you're like, well, if I don't bill my time, we don't we can't afford we can't be the, you know what are we going to do? And I would say to that problem, you've got to map out how many hours you need, then you've got to build that pipeline to be able to do that. Yeah, at that point you have, you have different issues, and I think the framework and just the thought process he laid out is is makes so much sense where it's once you're able to take the time to step back and start really addressing these things, it's being deliberate. It's, it's just laying out the plan, taking your steps backwards and figure out how to get there. And just in my, in my vocabulary, I just see it as being deliberate instead of accidental, just 
just being clear about what is happening and what the impacts could be and making sure your decisions are in line with that ultimate goal. Yeah, maybe you can't be 0% billable. I mean, even now I still bill, you know, less than 10 hours a week, but it's stuff that I really enjoy doing and we bill at a higher rate. But, you know, maybe you just start and say, okay, well, instead of 40 hours a week, I'm going to bill 30 hours a week this quarter. And then the next, the next quarter, I want to do 20 hours, and then I want to do 10, and then I want to do 5. And right, because it's a, it's a process. It yeah. does, it's not going to happen overnight. Exactly. Nothing, nothing worth doing right. really happens overnight, except making sure that all your tickets have acceptance criteria, and it just makes everything <laughs> amazing overnight. For long-term goals, anything you're trying to achieve, it, it can seem so far from where you're at right now that you never get started. Like when your inbox is overflowing after a vacation or something, it can be like, all right, I don't even want to look at it. Or when you're like, we have so much accidental evil in our organization right now, I, we can't even get started. We're used to this. We'll just deal with it. But you, you can't you can't really thrive if that's the mindset you have. I sound like a real jerk when I say this kind of stuff, but I just got back from two weeks, a two-week vacation in, in Portugal where I went to the wedding of, of one of our team, and uh, it, it took me an hour to get on top of my email. That's it. Because all I, all I was worried about was the urgent, important stuff. Right? All the other stuff could wait. And... In fact, that was several weeks ago. This this past weekend, I finally just, you know, I had some time and I sat down and just cleared out the the lowest priority stuff. I mean, it was just like select all, scan it, make sure there's no, you know, misfilings and then archive, right? Maybe read a couple little things here, but I don't have time for that newsletter. I don't have time for that newsletter. Archive, done, you know? I mean, that's that's the goal. And it seems like this framework for you has really helped you get to where you want to go. And I hope the listeners do take this to heart and, and do think about these bigger picture ideas and how they can actually break down in actionable steps. And for this part, though, I'm actually really excited to get into these rapid fire questions because I'm curious to see what your answers are. So for the first one, what do you think right now? What do you spend too much time doing? Yeah, um, I'd probably spend too much time worrying about things that I don't need to worry about really. Like, you know, I, I guess, you know, knowing that I can do things really, really fast. And sometimes it takes other folks longer to do that. And then I sit there and I do the calculation in my head. I'm like, man, I could do this in an hour and I'm paying, you know, I'm paying several people, several hours to do the same thing sometimes. And, um, but I have to be okay with that, right? I have to, I have to let that happen. I, I need to make sure that my model allows for that because otherwise I go crazy and I just, I, I don't scale, right? And there's a reason why, why I'm leading several organizations. It's because I can do this stuff and, you know, the, the, I can't build the whole organization on me. So, you know, me just being comfortable with the fact that some things are going to take longer and I've got to be okay with that and, you know, just let the, let the process flow. And when, you know, at the at the end of the year, for instance, this this year will be the end of the year of uh, probably the third year that we've actually made an explicit budget, and we've been growing up until this year. This is the year that we're at the size that we want to be at. We don't want to grow anymore on the the agency side. We want to grow on the product side. So now we actually have a fixed set of inputs for the agency. I actually know what things should cost, and I can go now start iterate on efficiency on the agency because it's not a moving target anymore. But you know, now I can just build the, build the billable hours and the efficiency to make sure that all that stuff is fitting. And so I, I guess, you know, I spend too much time being impatient and being unrealistic. And I've, I've tried to work on, you know, 
being calmer and more patient and more caring and more loving, as cheesy as that sounds, to allow the organization to not be stressed out by me, um, to where everybody feels happy and engaged. And so if you, if you were able to achieve all that, where would you redirect that time? Well, the, the place that I want to redirect it right now is onto our products. So I want the, I want the, the consulting to be totally locked down. It, it'll, it's just a, it's a little machine that hums along and um, it, it requires minimal cognitive overhead to keep it afloat. And then I want everybody else's, everybody's creative energy that is above and beyond that to be toward, you know, cr- crafting and, and creating I- interesting solutions. So we have Ricochet Labs, which does, you know, little side projects that's built into our budget, or at least it will be for 2017 um, people to be able to spend time kind of like Google's 20% time, but it's like, you know, people can just pursue vent, you know, little, little ideas I want. And, and I also want those to funnel into our, our product, you know, creation. I want our products to be pushing forward. Um, and I've recognized that, that, you know, an engineering organization is not a marketing organization. So trying to solve that problem, you know, for the products. Um, and I think we've got a pretty good solution for that in place. And, you know, I, I just want all that stuff to keep, keep pushing and keep creating. And, and I really want all that to drive toward the group's success. So everybody that's involved in Ricochet, I want them to benefit. But there is a little bit of a, at a certain point when you get everything locked down, you, I do, you know, I've, I do have to, that, that is until I have that next thing, I, I kind of get a little restless if I don't have something else to jump into. So this is not a, I don't know that this is like an entirely scalable solution because at a certain point you get everything under control and then it's like, well, what next? And then you got to find something else. But Ricochet can just keep, at some point, very few organizations actually or agencies actually end up creating successful products. And that's something that I've kind of dedicated my life toward getting on top of. And it's taken now five years, uh, actually, you know, probably closer to seven years to get it to the point where we can start doing that, right? Like just all this intense work that we've put into building Ricochet, investing millions of dollars into infrastructure and tools and management and all that stuff. Now we can start building the products. And so I, I think we could do that over and over and over again. I wish we had another hour so I could get into that because I, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that agencies so rarely are able to build a successful product. And I'd love to hear the reasons why and how you're, you're trying to change that. But we are running out of time, so I'll have to save that for another time. But the last thing I wanted to ask, well, the second last thing I want to ask is, Towards all those goals that you just laid out, towards that big vision, what are you actually hoping to accomplish on that in the next month? Um, so, right now we're 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 evangelizing the things that Ricochet um, is doing and can do, and and our thought leaders on. We're um, we've got a series of webinars that we have scheduled, and if you um, check out our website or you check out our Twitter or wherever um, we're, we're present on social media, you can learn about those topics. Same thing around the products we're, we're building in a, um, we've got a, a, a product evercurrent.io, which is, um, around security for right now we're focusing on a couple frameworks, but ultimately it's, it applies to every, every, you know, thing from desktops to phones to, you know, Linux boxes to, to anywhere where, where security is important. This allows you to have a, a bird's eye dashboard view of, of your exposure across your entire organization. So evangelizing topics around that um, and speaking to that. So really it's just business development and marketing and sales uh, 
to, to make sure that we have incoming thing, things and then doing experiments for, uh, you know, testing, iterating and, and scaling from, from those experiments. Awesome. I'm excited to see how all of that turns out. And so before I say goodbye, where can listeners go to learn more uh, from you, from Project Ricochet, just to see what you guys are up to? Where's the best place for them to head? Yeah, so we don't have um, our, our first webinar is this Wednesday. Uh, and it's, 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 we don't have the, like the webinar, uh, calendar up yet. Um, that's going to be coming up shortly, but you can go to projectricochet.com to learn about the things that we're, you know, evangelizing. And then also my personal website, caseycobb.com talks about, you know, I put a lot of my, uh, topics and writing. I have accidental evil, you know, some more writings around that on there. Um, and, and also if, if, if anybody is interested, if any of your listeners are interested in talking more about this, you know, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. I love speaking about it. I could talk about this as you can gather for hours and hours and hours. So um, I, I do, I, I've got a few speaking engagements um, coming up soon, but I'm always excited to, for opportunities to actually speak about this stuff as well. So if anybody has any you know, interest in that, feel free to reach out to me. Awesome. Well, Casey, you gave us a ton of thinking about it. I know my brain is already running a thousand miles an hour thinking about how this could apply, not even just in the agency world, but to my own life. So first, I want to say personally, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and sharing all these ideas. Yeah, thank you. The concept of accidental evil is so obvious when Casey just lays it all out there, but it's also something that we ignore time and time again, even if we get the concept of it. When we can be deliberate about our actions and their consequences, our lives and businesses are going to be so much better off. I mean, Casey is able to balance the duties of running an agency, advising other companies, writing, speaking, being a husband and a father, all of that without going crazy or needing to rush through each and every day feeling like nothing actually got done. It's easy to come up with excuses for why that wouldn't work for you. I mean, I do it all the time, but it really doesn't have to be that way. So take some time to think about your big picture goals for your agency and ask yourself whether or not you're actually working towards those in a sustainable way or even working towards them at all. If you aren't, it's not the end of the world. Start by looking at how you and your team spend their time, asking yourself what tasks actually matter, make some changes, and then go from there. I don't want to get preachy, but this stuff is really important. It's so easy to get caught up in all the mindless tasks that don't actually matter and just get distracted from the things that really do. So just take a step back and make sure you're on the right path. All right, that's all I have for you this week. If you enjoyed the show and learned something, head over to iTunes and leave a review. Tell me what it was that you learned. I love hearing from listeners and positive reviews really help us grow our audience. So if you could take a second to do that, it would mean the world to me. All right, I'll talk to you next week. See ya.